from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It's Thursday, the 12th of October, and we only have one more day until finally Friday. I hope you're doing okay and your week has been good, great, making a little bit of money and getting ahead. Boy, do I have a fantastic show for you today. Two just amazing men to introduce to you, great entrepreneurs, uh, some really sad stories and some really funny stories and interesting people. First up, we have Wayne Elliott. He is in the ship demo space, takes 900 foot ships and reduces it down to recycled metal. You will hear his story. He is also helping us with Strauss Naturals, a great company that is uh, sponsoring some of our segments. And I'm just starting to learn about the company and Wayne gives us a testimonial unlike anything I've ever heard for a company. If you want the sample of what a testimonial should look like, wait till you hear Wayne's testimonial for Strauss, and we will do that in a couple of minutes. And then after that, we have Des Hague on the show. His name is Des, D-E-S, Hague, H-A-G-U-E. He has been canceled, and I don't mean just a little bit. I mean hundreds, thousands of people out to get him canceled. We will talk about later what he did. He did get canceled. He lost a million dollar a year job, has lost tens of millions of dollars in lost income and opportunity and has a book out talking about it. Uh, I've, I know what he did. I've seen the video of it happening and I will comment in just a couple of minutes uh, on that in the last half of the show. All of us need to be worried about that, especially us podcast radio people. I mean, I'm out here trying to be interesting when we have a show and you got to be a little provocative to do that. You have to be a little bit aggressive and try to pull something out of the guest that hasn't been discussed before or try to get the guest to say something interesting. You just got to be a little bit edgy, but you can't be too edgy, right? And so... I feel this strain uh, every day. I used to be a university professor with a small P, you know, the one of the people who actually did the teaching and taught 250 students a semester with the big auditorium room. 18, 19 year olds. I was trying to be interesting for two and a half hours. You can't do that unless you're a little bit on the edge. I'd get fired in a heartbeat out there now. Anyway, an amazing show. We'll get started in just a second. Welcome back to the show again. Thank you so much. Our first guest today, Wayne Elliott. This is one of the cooler stories I have heard. He is the second generation of a family business in the ship destruction space. They take old Navy and commercial ships at the end of their life cycle 
and do the, well, not the retrofit, but the demo work and reduce it down to the scrap. And so I've never met anyone in this space. I can't wait to hear a little bit about it. Actively involved in the Strauss Naturals company that we've been talking a little bit about on the show. They are sponsoring some of our segments, and we appreciate that very much. And the way we got connected, Wayne, with Strauss is... Wayne takes Strauss every day, and it helps him uh, feel better. We'll ask him about that. Wayne, welcome. How are you doing? I'm just fine, thank you. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I am well today. How do you fall into the recycling business in your 20s? Well, I actually started a little earlier than that. Um, When I was uh, 13 or 14, my dad was manager of a shipbreaking company, a ship scrapping company that he started in Hamilton, Ontario for a, a family. And uh, so I worked there in the summers and at night I worked in the, <laughs> in the Dairy Queen and uh, drank more milkshakes than any human being on earth. Uh, that helped clog my artery not so many years later. But uh, our main business still is recycling ships, warships, freighters, submarines, destroyers, uh, self-unloaders. That's our main business to this day and removing wrecks out of the ocean and the lakes where they're sunk and all that kind of thing. But the uh, I got into involved with Strauss after they saved me. I had a, uh, a heart attack from, among other things, all those milkshakes when I was <laughs> 35. Half, half, oh, they did indeed. Half my life ago, uh, I had a heart attack at age 35. And the luckiest guy on earth, Jim, because I didn't do anything for about seven years until I found Strauss or they found me. And, um, boy, I'll tell you, and and I went from, I had angina, you know, leg sweats, uh, leg cramps, night sweats, shortness of breath, pinches in the chest, had all the angina symptoms, and then I had an irregular heartbeat that drove me pretty crazy for years. And uh, luckiest day of my life when I met Jim Strauss and and took the Strauss heart drops. And my arteries have been clear ever since. And uh, boy, in about three months, I felt like Superman. I honestly did. And then another of their products uh, helped me with that irregular heartbeat. And I had high blood pressure, too. And their kidney formula sure helped me with that. For 29 years, my blood pressure has been 120 over 70. Uh, so I'm forever grateful to Strauss and, uh, all those milkshakes. So to this day, it'd be my favorite food in the world, Jim, but I don't, I uh, have maybe one twice a year for a treat. And I was drinking, uh, just insane amounts of milk and milkshakes, like not exaggerating, you know, 15, 20 shakes a day when I my goodness. was in the Dairy Queen and How'd they stay when in I played business? football. Well, it was, I drank my profits is what happened. I leased the <laughs> yes, Dairy Queen and I, I drank the profits. And when I played ball, I would drink as many as 30 or 40 glasses of chocolate milk a day. And, um, uh, well, it didn't work out for me that way. It, it's funny when you play sports and work out every day, things look okay on the outside, but it doesn't really mean they're okay on the inside. And, uh, so anyway, here I am in my 70th year and, cooking along pretty good and uh fair bit of energy still and and uh, doing a lot of recycling and and uh and whatnot but that's a that's a short version of the story jim well very interesting let's 
jump back into it and pick up some of the pieces is a hundred percent of your salvage work then government you like navy based contracts i would assume no no we're about uh 50 50 we have three ship breaking yards in canada one on each coast and one here on lake erie the north shore of lake erie in port colburn on the side of the welland ship canal that's our that's our oldest facility, and uh, it's where we do primarily commercial shipbreaking, lake freighters and uh, cargo vessels, you know, is what we mostly do here, barges and, and large ships. So, uh, yeah, What's that's, the that's our main of business. A, a boat? Uh, does it make any difference if it only goes on the lakes versus the ocean with no salt water, and if they're just back oh, and huge forth on difference. Lake Erie? Yeah, huge difference. Yeah. Uh, Ships that aren't running in dual service, meaning down the St. Lawrence River where they get into the salt water, uh, past Montreal and such, uh, ships that are, that are in salt water service generally, if they're in salt water service full time, it's generally 30 year lifespan, uh, as that ballast water is pumped in and out of the tanks and the oxygen hits, hits the, uh, the bare steel. It just rots it. On the lakes, the ships that uh, only sail in freshwater uh, can last 100 years or more. The oldest ship I recycled was built in 1898. Uh, we just pulled one into the yard last week, uh, a freighter that was built in 1941 and sailed right up until they delivered her into our yard. Big difference in salt water. Right. And what's it cost to destroy a ship like that how long does it take say uh you know 300 foot something or another that would be a small one but for a six or seven hundred footer we're i would say by average four months on a ship the the uh before we touch any of the steel or any dismantling uh the uh, non-hazardous trash furnishings carpets wood glass mirrors toilets all that kind of thing is removed and then uh the asbestos which is oftentimes the most expensive part of the whole project uh and when a ship first comes in the first thing we do is empty any fuels oils uh oily water and detergent wash those tanks so that there isn't a drop of oil ever hits the ground or the water and after all of that, we start cutting and uh, and processing the the scrap metal from the steel mill. And what's the boat worth when it's destroyed? What's all the the metal, raw metal worth? Well, uh, you know, today in uh, U.S. money, it's north of three hundred dollars a ton. So, you know, a ship that was was uh, seven thousand tons, for example, there'd be just over $2 million in metal. My goodness. And what is it? Is that metal able to be used for new skyscrapers or is it better for Coke cans? What can we do with that recycled metal then? No, every, every metal gym, copper, aluminum, uh, stainless steel, steel, cast iron, every lumen, every metal is infinitely recyclable. It can be remelted okay. literally thousands of times and be as good as the first time it was made from virgin ore and metal and scrap metal rather. That makes sense. And so that's the beauty of it. So recycling conserves natural resources 
uh, melting used metal or scrap metal in a furnace uses approximately 80% less energy than making metal from virgin ore. And, uh, and of course, there's generally a fair bit of pollution that goes along with mining. So recycling uh, metal makes a, a whole lot of sense uh, in, in those three big ways. And then you're also working, though, in the batteries and things like that as well, right? Yes, we, uh, we broke the world's record and we sent here in Ontario, Canada, and we recycled uh, uh, 50, our high point was 54% of all consumer batteries sold in Ontario, we recycled. So we were doing about uh, 12 million pounds a year of those little batteries that are in your TV remote and right. uh, maybe your flashlight and, and so forth, uh, right down to the little button cells. Um, or coin cells, as they're also called. Some of them are small as the lead in a pencil. And how profitable is a business like that? Is it so manually involved, the separation or something, that it's hard to make money, or is it a cash cow? No, it's a, it's a challenge. Uh, I lost money in that battery business for 25 straight years, which uh, was either <laughs> being very determined or very stupid. I don't know which, but uh, I thought the I thought that environmental clock would tick around much faster than it did. Truthfully, Jim, I started maybe 15 or 18 years too early, <clears throat> but uh, but we never quit and uh, and turned it into a profitable business. Once they legislated in Ontario about 15 years ago that uh, it was legislated that batteries had to uh, be collected to uh, the best extent possible, then we, we began to make profit and, uh, and we're, we're profitable every year since. It's, it's sure no cash cow. It's a very complex business. And yes, the manual, <clears throat> manual side of it, we've never found the uh, technology to sort these batteries, the various chemistries, nickel, cadmium, alkaline. Alkaline was our main uh, battery that we would recycle. And alkaline, these are the non-rechargeable single-use alkalines, they are about 85% of all consumer batteries. So we, uh, we focused on those uh, the strongest, and we came up with uh, the best demonstrated technology in the world where Approximately 60% of the battery uh, is used as a micronutrient additive to fertilizers in the United States and helps grow most of the corn for ethanol in the United States. Um, then there's the steel fraction, the case. So we achieved both the highest recycling rate in the world and uh, had a process that we invented in-house that's so far the best demonstrated technology and the highest recycling rate uh, in the world. Do you have a unionized workforce or what is the situation? Obviously very skilled workers, but also hardworking, manual, dangerous, dirty work, I would imagine. What's the scale? Yes, most of our work is, uh, is dirty, hot, cold in the winter and so forth. Uh, no, we're, we're not unionized, but we uh, have very good relationships. We're lucky, really, Jim, it's... We've always been under 200 people company-wide, and uh, it really is run like a family business, run like a football team, and everyone's important, and everyone is appreciated. So 
I think uh, I think we're a happy bunch. Most of the employees have been around since your dad was there, or a lot of old timers. We've got yes, we've we've got some long-standing employees. The longest-standing employee started with my dad when he was fifteen, and he's still with us. And he turned seventy-four the other day. Wayne, what do you think about the work ethic of the younger generations and the 25-year-olds? I can't imagine a 20-year-old would work as hard as you have uh, for 60 years. Like you well, have. I think, yeah, we're generally finding in, in, in every aspect of business and everybody who's trying to hire people, it has never been as difficult Um I think that the uh, the various governments have have uh, really entitled people, and um, you know, so there's some very bright young people, of course, who will will move to the the top of the heap, uh, no doubt. And uh, I, I I think it's safe to say that that uh, many are are certainly more entitled than previous generations you know uh when's the last time you saw a 12 or 15 year old cutting the grass that's right you don't see it here in canada i'll tell you you don't see it here no you don't see it in in the states either uh almost always the the you know mom and dad hire a company to come in and do it and then the kid watches while they're playing video games, someone come and do the manual chore that they should have been doing. That's what we do. Well, here's another big difference, Jim. Um, my dad arranged me to cut six neighbors lawns when I was a kid, two bucks a piece. It was two bucks to cut, trim your lawn. It was two bucks to shovel your snow and your sidewalks. It was two bucks to compound and Simonize your car. Uh, and, uh, I know two bucks isn't what it used to be, but uh, uh, I wonder these days, when, when's D-Day? When do young people learn how to work and get a work ethic, uh, you know, beyond school where they have to maybe use their back or put a little energy into it, physical effort into it? And uh, I think we've, it's not, it's not the kid's fault, you know. It's not the young people's fault, really. It's uh, what they've been allowed to do when i when i was young if you didn't cut the lawn properly or anything else your dad told you to do well you got to do it again until you did it right you soon learned that it's best to do it right the first time today what i've seen myself is all a kid will do is mess up cutting the lawn and then the mom or dad says oh, i'll just do it myself That's, and then the uh, young person's off the hook for good <laughs> so two different styles of upbringing Yes, it is. I uh, had my 12-year-old pressure washing the deck the other day, and he had never pressure washed before. It was his first time, and he got done, and I uh, let it dry a little bit and then went and moved the piece of furniture that he had pressure washed around and stuff like that and sent right. him back out to try again, and uh, I think he learned that lesson, especially with pressure washing. That's I don't, great. I don't think That's the best that way to learn it. Yes. No, that's the best way to learn it, indeed. I had my four sons uh, painting lugger boxes and uh, the sides of plant wall and stuff like that by the time they were 10. And I just thought, as my dad taught me, he used to call it, you got to learn the value of a buck, you know. And uh, 
uh, you got to learn what it takes to get one in your pocket. And so I just really copied what my dad did, and uh, it worked out. My boys all know how to work and do work hard. Are they in the I mean, industry? A, with you? A, yes. Yeah. That's uh, yeah, a, heartwarming to hear a third generation family like that. That's an amazing story. Yeah, well, they, they, you know, it has its uh, has its ups and downs, right? Uh, there's no doubt about it. But I, I'm not sorry uh, that that's the way our family's done it, really, and uh, uh, everything's worked out so far. Let's go back to Strauss Naturals for just a second. So you met Jim Strauss, and they I think they're a little bit different as far as supplement companies. Uh, so many supplement companies have a ginkgo product or whatever, and Strauss has a heart product, a prostate, a kidney, cold. They use the simple names, <laughs> so it's easy for us to figure out what the hell it does. Uh, yeah. You seem like yeah, you would are- uh, carry Jim Strauss across the earth you appreciate his products so much oh i own my life uh jim i own my life and uh my relationship with jim i was uh, apart from his son peter of course uh i was the one he taught and i took over the radio shows and lectures for him many years ago and uh we were very close he, he was uh he was really something the he had such an understanding of nature and how everything connects. And uh, he never, there was times he said things, Jim, where I thought to myself, geez, I wish he wouldn't say that at lectures, you know. But there has never been one word that man ever said that did not turn out to be true in, in my experience. And uh, he truly cared about people. They've always had this satisfaction guarantee. And uh, Jim would never sell you a product if he didn't think you, you needed it. He, he, you know, he was just never about that. And, uh, I always had such respect for him and, uh, and just brilliant. Some of these formulas, Jim, are 200 years old. These are not new formulas. Uh, he's, uh, Peter is the eighth generation herbalist in the Strauss family. Wow. And in Canada, Strauss is huge. Right? You're like the Hortons of the supplement world. Am I getting that analogy right? <laughs> that would be quite an overstatement, Jim. The whole uh, the whole country seems addicted to Tim Hortons coffee and donuts, but uh, we're, we're well-known. Strauss is well-known in Canada and been commercially available for about 45 years now. And it's the... Uh, uh, it's really and truly is, has been considered the, now this is an old expression, but the Cadillac of uh, natural health products, uh, meaning, you know, as good as it gets. Right. And then talk to me about the expansion into the United States that you're working on now. What's the strategy there? The goal? Well, we're just trying, we're very conscious today of, um, how strange people are for money between uh, COVID uh, just really destroying uh, a lot of small business and uh, many jobs and, and hurting people financially. And then then along came terrible inflation where the price of uh, groceries and gasoline has just gone through the roof. And then the, the triple crown, the interest rates uh, have started to go up so high that it's just just crushing people that got a new mortgage in this last couple of years with their payments doubling and so forth. Um, 
So, you know, we've what we've tried to do in the United States is is go direct to consumer and uh and just the company offers the best deals they can. They always have a uh a something on special or a new product for people to try. We're just very conscious that it's uh it's more difficult than ever for folks financially and uh um you know, to spend fifty or a hundred dollars, uh, it, it's almost like they're luxury items, uh, Jim. Even though they're just so very good, uh, very effective, and our health, you know, is our wealth, really. But it, it doesn't matter. You have to put food on the table and uh, get around with the vehicle and uh, and so forth and raising children. So, never been a tougher time, I don't think, for people in, in many recent years than today. I have to agree with you. Unfortunately, I, I, I think that these are some tough, tough times. So, and it's, uh, it's really amazing Wayne to hear a tough manly guy like you that tears ships apart for a living talking like, uh, a sycophant about Strauss naturals and, I mean, I would think that you were paid until I find out that, you know, you know, you're not, you're, uh, you're the salt of the earth, except you don't like salt. Well, I, I, own, I, I own my life, uh, Jim. And I just, I want that for everyone who, who needs the help with their health. Uh, truly. I, I, uh, I wish everyone could have it. I guess I, I, I wish we could get it on Medicare. That was Jim Strauss's dream. But uh, the straight truth is there, there, nobody in the medicine business, Jim, wants a, something that can really help fix you for a few hundred bucks or a hundred bucks. Nobody wants that. It's, it's a very expensive health care. We're drowning here in Canada with our so-called free health care. It's a, it's a disaster, uh, really. Um, you, you could wait uh, up to a year to see a specialist here. And uh, just hope that you don't die in the meantime. It's a, it's a it's a tough situation. They've just approved after after uh, firing nurses who would not get vaccinated. And I take it there was ten or fifteen percent of the nurses that didn't want a vaccine. And uh, so they they worked all through those times with people with COVID when there was no vaccine, and then they they were forced to leave their jobs uh, if they wouldn't get vaccinated. So. Canada has just approved some 37,000 uh, foreign nurses that were certified in other countries, and this, this could never happen before with doctors, nurses, engineers. You had to, your, your experience in another country didn't count, except the U.S. The U.S. and Canada have that relationship, but, but otherwise in the world it didn't count. And uh, so they've, they've hired 37,000 nurses that came from other countries just recently because the situation got so dire. Not only did they miss that 10 or 15 percent of nurses, but they, they worked the remaining 85 or 90 percent half to death, you know, uh, right. yep. uh, trying to cover the, cover the ground. Yep. Wayne, you were absolutely fascinating, and I wish there were uh, people like you today. You are what makes entrepreneurship, and you're the man that, Builds economies. You're the reason entrepreneurs are sexy. Well, I thank you for saying that, but I think one of the keys is, uh, honestly, Jim, is 
don't worship money. Just uh, Jim Strauss always felt like this too. Just work hard, and uh, eventually you'll get enough money. You, you may never be on the Forbes magazine, or and who cares about that anyway? Uh, but uh, if you work hard and do a good job, honest with people, and give good service, you you, you should make a living. And uh, you know I believe that, and I, I think you know they say money's the root of all evil. And some of the things going on today is very difficult to understand. I think maybe money and politics are the root of all evil, Jim. I agree. I uh, I am down on the politicians, not one type, all of them. If you're a politician, I'm kind of mad at you. Anyway. Wayne, thank you so much. Amazing conversation. Uh, you've led a, a great career of honesty, integrity, and hard work. You should be incredibly proud of yourself. Oh, thanks very much, Jim. I'd be, be happy to go on your show with you anytime. I appreciate, I appreciate the that. opportunity. And we will be right back. We're going to talk about one of the most interesting stories you'll hear in a long time. A man sort of kicked a dog a little bit, got canceled, lost a multi-million dollar job, and oh was basically run out of town. We'll be right back to share this story right after this. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a wonderful question. Actually, Jim. Oh my gosh, I'd love the opportunity to do this. Thank you, Jim. Wow, that's that's, awesome. that's a great one. You know, that is a phenomenal question. That's a great question, and, and I don't have a great answer. It, that's a great question. Oh, that is such a loaded question and that's actually a really good question school for startups radio we are back and still i really am thankful that you are with us today boy do we have an exciting story to talk about now this is going to be an interesting conversation please welcome des haig to the show he got canceled and is trying to come back and become part of society again. He was caught in an elevator video beating the hell out of his wife. No, wait, no, that's not it. He killed a dog. <laughs> no, wait, that's not it. He pushed a dog aside with his foot is the way I've seen it. And I've, millions of other people have seen the video. You can have the conversation uh, with your friends and discuss what you think uh, this is my wife and I are dog lovers and we talked about it last night. We watched the video and both of us feel like we've sort of done that in our lives ourselves. If you're a pet owner at one point, you kind of just push them to the side. This pet did not die. It didn't suffer. It didn't break, but that's got canceled, lost a multi-million dollar a year job because of it. And is here today to talk about it. He's written a book called 15 Minutes of Shame, How a Twitter Mob Nearly Ruined My Life. Des, welcome. How are you? Oh, terrific. Thanks for being uh, for, for welcoming me on the show, Jim. And uh, all I've got to say, Jim, is where were you nine years ago when I needed you and your wife? Because that's the rational thinking we kind of needed at the time. Well, uh, first of all, you have great <laughs> hair, so uh, I'm Thank jealous you. of your hair. Uh, you know, I, I'm disgusted by all of the canceling. It's just so, uh, you know, throwing stones in glass houses. Such dishonorable people are the judges as if they've never done anything wrong. It's the, uh, it's mccarthyism on citizens and it's i think wrong every single one of us has done something that deserves something that would make us get canceled 
my thought. What do you think? No, I completely agree. I think, you know, the sad thing is what social media has allowed people to have. It's like Phil Collins, too many people, too many voices. You know, it's like there's, everybody's got a microphone. Uh, and some people need them like you, Jim, for your show, but not everybody needs to share every single, you know, thought that they have. And being judge and jury is just not a good look. And that's unfortunately what social media has brought to the forefront now is everybody can be cancelled at any moment. And I always think about the mob is you have to be careful because the mob's going to turn and come for you. And I don't think that's how we should live our life, Jim. We make mistakes. We need redemption. That's, that's kind of how, you know, we've lived for thousands and thousands of years. And we've just ripped up that playbook and said, no, let's cancel somebody, burn them on in the digital square on the hour by the hour. And if you, if, if, if you just bring more body bags. That's their kind of thinking today, and it's sad and so demoralizing for people who've had to suffer through that, you know, the, those circumstances. So I told the story, Des, you tell the story now. Walk us through what happened, your feelings as it was happening. Uh, tell us the side, yeah. the story from your side. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Uh, so it's, I lay it out in my book, 15 Minutes of Shame, uh, how a Twitter mob almost ruined my life. And, and the reality is this, I wasn't having, you know, my best of times. I was, my wife was going through, I'm just setting up the stage, Jim, okay, context, which the social media, you know, carnivores and assassins can't handle. The reality is, you know, my wife's going through bilateral mastectomy, breast cancer. I, you know, my son has had a concussion, unfortunately, playing sports. And I've just been, you know, diagnosed of early stage prostate cancer. So I'm in shock. I'm trying to get treatment. I'm trying to handle this by myself because I don't want to, you know, worry my family. And it was a calamity of errors. And so I'm in Vancouver having treatment. Nobody knows about it. I'm trying to be the rock and not worry my family who are already having, you know, some, some tumultuous times. Big mistake number one there, Jim. Uh, anyway, so I'm in Vancouver. My friend uh, has got a dog. It's a nine-month uh, Doveman pincer. It's no small dog by any stretch of the imagination. And I go for I, I go to take the dog for a walk. He, he's walking at the side of me. It bolts behind me around my back. Must have seen something, startled by something. Dislocates two of my fingers on my right hand. It was painful. I wish I would have had the fortitude to count to 10 and move on. But as I'm walking the dog, the dog is then resisting to be moved and walk with me. And I kind of over-discipline the dog. I'm glad you said, Jim, that you and your wife have seen the video. Many, many of my friends have said the same thing. God, I'm just glad my worst moment wasn't caught on camera. However, for the Twitter world, they don't want an apology. I, I apologize to the person I needed to apologize to, Jim. I apologized to the dog owner and said, listen, I've lost my temper. I over-disciplined the dog. It absolutely needs some training. Dogs shouldn't be dislocating fingers at will. And then resisting any type of uh, behavior, uh, you know, uh, discipline to move forward. So that's really what happened. The incident the aftermath was just something I never thought was physically possible in my world. Uh, and I, we'll get to that if we, if we have time. So how long did it take for 
the video to explode and how did it explode? <laughs> uh, keep going with the story. Yeah, well, Jim, you know, thank you. Um, unfortunately, not that long. So the reality is the incident happened in July. How did it get out? Uh, it was in an elevator. That just doesn't normally get yeah. broadcast. Yeah, that's because it's by nefarious people, Jim. We're going to come to a, a a situation where it's almost like you can't believe some of the things that happened happened. Um, so, you know, a couple of weeks after, you know, about a month after the the incident, about a month, it wasn't immediate, the video was leaked by one of the security guards in the building. Uh, not because they were concerned about the dog, because the dog clearly wasn't her. Uh, however, they wanted this individual wanted to get his boss fired. So this was nothing other than a grab for power. Sad. That's how it went down. Then the um, Society Prevention for Cruelty to Animals, the beast in BC, British Columbia, they got to see this video with the um, security guy. And all they wanted was a complete takedown of me, Jim. He's a white, young CEO, rich. Now he's perceived to be a Republican, so he's the Antichrist. We are going to raise money, millions from this guy. It really, again, very sad when you think about it. And in the book, again, Jim, not one other incident of anybody causing an animal any kind of distress going all the way to cruelty did this organization named the person they named me because they wanted to raise money. All right. Well, there, but for the grace of God, go I. <laughs> All right. Exactly. And how did that affect your professional life? Oh, it was a dumpster fire, Jim. I mean, immediately, you know, um, I was trying to battle through with my executive team, my, we, my, my the board that I was serving on at Centerplay, who I'd, you know, you know, half a billion dollars in return, Jim, that I'd made the investors. They completely capitulated and just threw me to the curb. And then, so that was, you know, very traumatic and then several you know once what once it's like a, a run on on gold or run on the banks once there's fear in our know, blood in the water everybody runs for cover so i had to resign from several other board positions that i was on and it was net for me it was never about the loss of money it was about my reputation it was about you know i've done so well for you know so many people have raised a hundred million dollars to people in need and causes, not because I had to, because I wanted to. And then suddenly now I'm finding that my life of me being uh, part of the solution, I'm part of the problem. I'm now the hunted. I'm the villain in this. And I, that was the hardest thing for me to, to get my and wrap my head around for many years. Right. And so what are your plans now? Why write this book? Why stick your head up again and become a target again? You know, Dustin, let me introduce this, uh, a different sort of 
line of thinking to this conversation. When your publicist reached out to me and said, would you do this story? The first thing I thought of was how cool entrepreneurship is that if you are green and uh, three layers gay in your alien world or whatever, and you smell bad and you're different from me in every single way possible, have good hair, all of that. And (laughs) if you have a product that I want at a good price, I'm buying the product. I don't care about anything if the product is good at the price I want. And I think that's the way most of the world is. And so I saw this and I was like, you know, entrepreneurship is the savior for people who find themselves discriminated against in many different ways, because if they go out there and create a business where they're providing a good service at a good price, people are going to rally around that. What are your thoughts as you Why'd you write write this book? Why come out again? Yeah, well, well, thanks, Jim, for the question and your thinking there. Uh, The reality is I had a story that I wanted to get out. I, you know, I thought about the situation. I thought about my life and and I thought that I had, I had a message that I, I don't want anybody to suffer what I did, Jim, to be honest. You know, I, I had the f- financial means to survive this. But what happens for the people who don't? The guys who are cancelled, the guys who are ridiculed, the guys who are destroyed, and suddenly they, they've got no support. They can't defend themselves. They can't have a, a roof over their heads. They are victimized. And I don't like playing the victim, but they are, they are crushed and destroyed. And I don't want that to happen. I want people to say, learn from my experiences. What I went through, people can learn from that. People can defend themselves. People will be better prepared. And that's what I want. If one person is, that's, that's just on the cancel culture aspect, Jim. The bigger question is, what world do we want to live in? So that was one reason why I wanted to write the book. The second reason is, there's a lot of business lessons there, Jim. I've ran eight large multi-billion dollar companies some of them as large as 20 30 billion i've be, i've sat on 20 boards i've been an entrepreneur i've done startups i'm helping founders now there's a lot of business lessons there that i wanted to share with the world but i suppose really the most overarching burning desire why i wanted to write this book is i will not let the haters and the keyboard assassins and carnivores destroy me. They can try and cancel me, and they have tried, Jim. You bet they have. They're never going to succeed. So I think at the end of the day, a couple of things happened in the last year or so where people came after me again, and I thought, enough. So really, my haters and detractors are the ones that have driven me to write this book, tell my story, not my truth, the truth, and move forward undefeated with a mentality of I'll do whatever it takes to survive and thrive in this world. So if someone is facing this themselves, what should they do? What is your best practices on how to handle this? Say you wake up and you find out that you're Monica Lewinsky or something. 
<laughs> well, I thought I was even worse than that at one time. So, uh, you know, it's very difficult. I mean, Jim, I don't want to lay this as it's so easy because it's not. It took me years. And I, I think I've been through a lot in my life and I, I just couldn't handle it. It took me time to absorb it and then move forward. So the, the first and most important thing is don't lose yourself in the moment. Um, I love the song from Sinead O'Connor, uh, Nothing Compares to You. And I feel that with my friends, family and colleagues. You know, show you're vulnerable, get with them, ask for help. Uh, certainly ask them to support you in different forums. It's very difficult and several of my, many, many people try to defend me on Twitter. But when you've got the rage machine against you, you're shouting in the wind. So I would uh, suggest not trying to get into arguments on Twitter. But the mistake I made with my PR, PR companies at the time, Jim, we try to play by the Queensbury rules. Professional, the truth will set you free uh, and all that kind of stuff. Social media wants nothing to do with that. They want complete annihilation. So you've got to make sure that you get your message out on platforms. I failed to do that appropriately. Uh, the next thing, after you've gone into adversity, particularly of the cancellation type, you know, you you got to start looking after yourself. You got to you got to eat well. You got to sleep. You got to try and get off any of the alcohol or other things that put you in suspended animation. Like you try and lose yourself, you're doing nothing. Just you just stop in the clock, and then you have to start that clock again, and and really just try and you know like for me i was on linkedin every week i was on different platforms i didn't allow them to silence my voice and so i i, I would they, they'd be the things that i would say to people and i lay some of these things out again in the book as well jim to help people why did the marquis of queensbury get to make up all the rules in the first place you know i've never thought about I, that I, i've got it's the British. I got to tell you, you know, that's why, you know, that we, we, we got it wrong. Even though I am British, that's why, that's why 1776 happened. That's her name, right? It was the Marquess of Queensbury. Am I getting that right? You are. Yes. Very good. Uh, that's I. One afternoon was recording the show and finished the show and walked out to the main part of the house. And my wife was in the kitchen with two guys and they said, we're here with a search warrant. Go stand Ooh. over there. Cause we're going to search everything you've got. And they then seized every piece of paper, every computer, everything. And for three years, I was investigated by the GBI, the Georgia Bureau of investigation with FBI help course and when they showed up it was for a financial thing that they thought i had done wrong and uh they showed up to serve the search warrant desk with i don't know 20 police with uh wow. machine gun not machine you know guns drawn the yep. big guns out yep. there was a fire truck in case i blew up the house uh <laughs> an ambulance uh we live on a cul-de-sac. You couldn't go anywhere on the street because it was police cars and SWAT. It was just packed for a financial crime, mind you, a financial crime. And in the end, 
I was not charged with anything. There was no negotiation of any charges. I, they simply went through all of the evidence. They didn't find a crime. They asked me some questions. I answered them. I never hired an attorney. And in the end, they said, you are, it's, it's over. We're sending your stuff back. And I was always, my wife and I joked, and we lived through three years of absolute hell. When do we get the letter of apology? You know, when do, when does the state write yeah. and say, oops, we're sorry. That really sucked. And your neighbor saw that, you know, uh, I don't even know what the question is. I'm just telling you the story. Yeah, well, so, uh, well, I could tell you this, Jim. I mean, I would say this, first of all, I saw sympathize and empathize with you and is, as it relates to the waiting for an apology, Yes, I just say, don't hold your breath. It is not um, oh. very similar, Jim. You know, not the FBI uh, in Vancouver. I was, you know, my apartment that I just was recovering in. I was raided like you. I didn't have twenty cops, but I had cops from both sides of the corridor. You know, knocking on my door, wanting to kick the door in. I thought they'd made a mistake that it was actually some fugitive or some kind of drug kingpin or, you know, some bad guy they were looking for. But, oh, no, it was me. I over-disciplined a dog and deserved that treatment uh, from the, just like you with the FBI. I, it's, it, it's you, you think that it couldn't be possible. And you went, I mean, think about it. You went through three years. You're in a cul-de-sac. Everybody saw it. Where was the apology? Where was the notification? It was nothing. Zero. Just like in me in Vancouver, these people were saying, this guy's going to do serious prison time. He must be beating his wife. He must be beating his kids. He must be beating everybody. He's a terrible person. The, the press was just unhinged. And my only apology, Jim, unlike you, came in the courts when... I wasn't given time. I had a, it was, it was judged as causing an animal distress, didn't raise the level of even cruelty. And that was the only, I suppose, uh, apology-ish thing that happened in this entire process. Well, that's, uh, I'm impressed that you made it through this and uh, have battled back um i just want to tell one thing to wrap up my story and then i'll let you have your final word the as soon as the police left and it was about three o'clock they got there at probably nine in the morning and they left at three three thirty and when they left i uh you know my wife and i had to talk about what we should do and i was like i have to walk into up and down the street and so i took my dogs and walked straight down the middle of the road around the cul-de-sac and back three or four times just to let everyone know that I hadn't been arrested. You know, I'm still here. Yeah. Des, what are you going to do now with the rest of your life? What do you, so you've written the book, your word is out six months from now, your promotional tour will be over. The book will just go into the past. Then what are you going to do? Yeah. And by the I, way, I you and I are the exact same age. We were both born in 67. We had talked about that before we came on air. And so you're a young man. You still have 
15, 20 years of productivity. What are you going to do? Great. Uh, well, my wife wants me out of the house. So, you, 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 you know, you're singing to the same choir. No, in all seriousness, um, I've run eight companies, Jim, and I would love, and I'm talking to a couple now. I believe I'll be running companies very shortly again. Um, and, and I look forward to that. I'm, I'm writing my second book right now which is really more business orientated. It's think your way to the top about the lessons that I've learned and through others in my life that can help others as well. So I want to run companies. I'm going to run companies again. I've got my second book coming out. I'll do some keynote speaking on, you know, the power of resilience, overcoming adversity, overcoming difficult things in your life and never being defeated and moving forward. So I'm looking forward to that. And, you know, hopefully there'll be some other projects that I haven't even thought about at this time. That's right. We never know what the future will tell. Das, thank you so much for being with us, for being honest and sharing your story. And I, again, I just pray that it doesn't happen to me. You know, all I do here is talk and I try to be provocative or otherwise no one will listen, right? You try to, you know, you try to say yeah, anyway. And so, uh, I, I'm impressed you made it through it. Congratulations. Hope the book sells well. Thank you, Jim. Really appreciate your time. And if anybody wants it, Jim, to get to the book, is Des. It's um, go to LinkedIn. Des Hig is my handle on Twitter. Des Hig. The book is fifteen minutes of shame. It's available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and my publisher, publisher Amplify Publishing Group. So lots of ways to get the book. Thank you again, Jim. I appreciate it, and I can't wait to meet you and your wife. Thank you. And we are out of time, but you know what? We will be back tomorrow. Be safe, everyone. Go make a million dollars. Take care. Bye now.